Almighty God, would you send your spirit? And would you send your spirit so that it would convict us of what we need to hear? And that it will apply the words that I speak, Lord, into the hearts of all of these people. I've prepared a sermon, but it will not accomplish anything unless your spirit work in the hearts of these people. And so, Lord, I pray for your presence of your spirit to be moving in us, to be guiding us, and to be teaching us. We pray this all through your son's name. Amen. Now, I would say this thing. Let's try that again. Okay, good. I got an email saying that the junior high group had an overnighter, right? And the overnighter, they were going to watch a Star Wars movie, right? And it was supposed to be episode four, right? But it didn't turn out to be episode four. It turned out to be episode five. But nonetheless, I prepared something based on episode four, so I'm going to test you all in terms of your Star Wars trivia. All right? So for all of you who have watched episode four, A New Hope, now in the... In the episode four, when Luke went to and finally found Obi-Wan Kenobi, and then Obi-Wan Kenobi turned to Luke and said, while well, they were still on the planet of Tatooine, they said that you must learn the blank, 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 blank if you are to come with me to Alderaan. Now, do you know what those four words mean? What four words are? You must learn the... Absolutely, you must learn the ways of the Force if you are to come with me to Alderaan. And so just as the way of the Force is vital for a Jedi, so also the way of the Spirit is vital to a Christian. Or to put it in terms of a big idea today, is that walking by the Spirit is the way we live out the normal Christian life. Walking by the Spirit is the way we live out the normal Christian life. And the way I'm going to approach this text, this sermon today, is that I'm going to ask three questions. Three questions. The first question is a why, what, and a how. Why is it important to walk by the Spirit? Next question, what happens when we walk by the Spirit? And then how do we actually walk by the Spirit? So three questions, and I'm going to try to answer them. We'll spend a little bit more time in terms of the how part, all right? Oh, one more thing I forgot to tell you is that there wouldn't be time to do sermon questions today because we have a baptism later on, but I'll hang around at the end of the service, and so if you, if you have any questions, you can just come up and ask me. All right, now back to this. And so let's take a look at the first question in terms of why. Why should we walk by the Spirit? And the text that we're going to take a look at, us at this today tells us that we need to walk by the Spirit so that we are victorious over the flesh and the law. Now, taking a look at 5, 16 to 18, and you can see that there are two, the two parts in the kind of the yellow letters. I'm going to read that. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then moving down to verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so here, why should we walk by the Spirit is that this passage gives us two reasons why we should walk by the Spirit. First one, so that we are victorious over the flesh. That means we 
but not gratify the desires of the flesh. Second reason is that we would not be under the law. If we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we walk by the Spirit, the law no longer has binding authority over us. Now, in this sermon, I'll just focus in terms of the flesh because uh, that's what the passage mainly focuses upon. So I'm going to focus a little bit more on the flesh here. Now, here then, you know, in verse 17, then Paul gives the reason why we are to do this. The reason why we are to do this is that the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh, and they are in conflict with each other. They are in conflict with each other. And so Paul here explains that there is a certain cosmic battle between the spirit and the flesh, and that they are opposed to one another. And here then, you know, in terms of this cosmic battle, there are two main players. There's the spirit and there's the flesh. The spirit is not like the force, all right? Because the spirit is the person of the Trinity. It's not a thing. Moreover, the Spirit is the creator of all things, whereas the force, if you all know your Star Wars trivia, is created by all things. All right, so the Spirit is not a force. The Spirit is ultimately the, the third person of the Trinity. Now, the flesh, on the other hand, is basically here the influence and power that leads us to sin. When we were unbelievers, we were all slaves to the flesh. We had no choice but to walk according to the flesh. But when we belong to Christ, we are no longer slaves to the flesh. Nonetheless, you know, we still feel the pull. We still feel the influence of the flesh. And it then comes into conflict with the desires of the spirit. But we have this choice. We can either follow our old habits, old patterns of the flesh, or we can follow the desires of the spirit. Let me give you an illustration. Now, before two people get married, they come from their respective family of origin. One person, for example, could come from abusive parents, abusive family. But when they get married, they have this choice. They are no longer in their old family, old family of origin with abusive relationships. But since they have been so used to it, so used to this old patterns of behavior that they sometimes feel drawn to act in their old habitual ways. But they have a choice to make. They have a choice to make to either to continue to walk in the newness of the new life that they have or to walk in the old patterns which they have been so used to. And that choice is also given to us that we can either walk by the Spirit or we can follow the old patterns of the flesh. Even though the flesh no longer is, has dominion, absolute power over us, nonetheless, we still feel the influence of the flesh. And so we have this choice here, and there's this tension here. As a result of this tension between the flesh and the spirit, ultimately here, Paul says that, so that you are not to do whatever you want, meaning that there are these two powers that are battling on you. It's either black or white, there is no gray. You are either walking by the Spirit or you are walking according to the flesh. You cannot walk a middle ground. 
In the conflict between the spirit and the flesh, there is no neutrality. You have to make a choice. And Paul then urges us to walk by the spirit. Because if you don't, you are going to walk by the flesh. So walking by the spirit is not a choice. It is a necessity for those who are followers of Jesus. So ultimately recap, why do you have to walk by the spirit? Because that is the only way to live out the normal Christian life. If you do not walk by the spirit, you will walk by the flesh. Now let's then take a look at the next question here. What is the result of walking by the Spirit. And the text we're going to take a look at today then tells us that the result of walking by the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit, not the works of the flesh. Now, coming to this first part in verse 19, it tells us what the works of the flesh are. And if you take a little bit closer, you can see that they are somewhat divided by semicolons. And the semicolons give you a clue that the these aspects of the works of the flesh are kind of grouped in several categories. So the first one is that we have three sins of centrality here, which is sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery or centrality. Then after that, you have two that really deals with not failure to worship the one true God, which is idolatry and witchcraft. After that, you have eight sins that deals with relationships. So we have it in terms of here... Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions and factions and envy. And lastly, you have two that deal with loose living, which is in terms of drunkenness or seer. Now, this works of the flesh, it's not a complete list. It's not a comprehensive list. And that's why Paul says at the end, and the like, meaning, and things like these here. Also, that ultimately, these, the list here of the works of the flesh, they are not a comprehensive, and there's probably some overlap. Now, the consequence of walking by the flesh is then given here, and Paul then says that those who live like this, those who do these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ultimately, those who continually manifest the works of the flesh in their lives will not inherit the kingdom of God. Walking by the flesh results in acts of the flesh, and ultimately results in eternal damnation itself. By contrast, walking by the Spirit results in the fruit of the Spirit, results in eternal salvation. But then you might ask me, I thought that we were saved by faith alone. So what's all this about the fruit of the Spirit? Absolutely that we are saved by faith alone but by a faith that is not alone. We are saved by faith alone, but by a faith that is not alone. We are saved by a certain kind of faith, a faith that manifests itself in works, a faith that manifests itself in repentance, a faith that manifests itself in turning away from sin. Now, Paul is not saying here that the kingdom of God, salvation, is only reserved for those who are sinless. But rather he's saying that if your life mainly, consistently, habitually, continually manifests these sins, it shows them that you are led by the flesh rather than according to the spirit. So that ultimately those who live according to the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
So this is the works of the flesh, that if you live according to the flesh, you will produce the works of the flesh. But what if you live by the Spirit, walk according to the Spirit? Paul then tells us that ultimately you will produce the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit here ultimately is seen in love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things there is no law. Now, there are nine elements here, but again, it is not a complete or it is not a definitive list. The list was chosen to suit the situation in Galatians itself. This means that in a different situation, Paul might have provided a different list. But notice that Paul says it is the fruit or fruit of the Spirit. Fruit, singular. It is a singular thing, you know that. And I'm not too sure entirely clear why does Paul say it is the fruit of the Spirit, but I suspect that there is one central thing that the Holy Spirit is working towards. One central thing that the Holy Spirit is working towards, and that is cruciformity. That is ultimately that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And that all of this love, joy, peace, they are all different aspects of who Christ is that we are ultimately to be conformed to. And see, the goal of discipleship and the work of the Holy Spirit in us is that our thoughts, our emotions, our actions, our decision-making process is all going to be shaped and conformed to the mind of Christ. And that the fruit of the Spirit is ultimately the character of Christ. All right? Now let me give you a test case here. How about non-Christians who exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? I mean, you all met, sometimes you met unbelievers, you know, who are the sweetest people ever, who are more gentle than some of the Christians you know, who are more patient and more loving than some of the Christians you know. What do we make of it? Would they be the fruit of the Spirit, or would they be works of the flesh? What say you? Flesh. Why flesh? And let me give you some reasons why it is the works of the flesh. Because ultimately for it to be the fruit of the Spirit, there needs to be two criteria for it. That ultimately it has to be the origin and the goal. Because for it to count as a fruit of the Spirit, it must originate from the Spirit. That's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. So for the fruit of the Spirit means that a fruit that is ultimately produced by the Holy Spirit. And it is not something that comes from our own natural ability. Rather, it has its origin in the Holy Spirit. And since non-believers do not have the Holy Spirit working in their lives, the love the compassion that they show cannot be a fruit of the Spirit. The second reason, the second reason why it cannot be the fruit of the, the Spirit is because of its goal, the goal. Now, the goal of each fruit of the Spirit is ultimately for the glory of God. It is for the glory of God. And one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit is to point the world towards Jesus. And so the fruit of the Spirit is thus conformity to the character of Jesus so that it ultimately leads to the glory of God. When unbelievers do any good works, they are not doing it to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
And they are not absolutely doing it for the glory of God. They may be doing it for their own glory, or they may be doing it for some other humanistic goal, but not for the glory of God. So in those cases here, the works that they do, the good works that they do, cannot be the fruit of the Spirit, but ultimately it will still be the works of the flesh. So let me just give you a recap of where we've gone today so far, is that here, Paul is telling us that the lifestyle of a person reveals whether they are walking by the Spirit or the flesh here. Those who walk by the Spirit do not produce the works of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit. By their lifestyle, you would know whether they are walking by the Spirit or the flesh. Jesus says the same thing. By their fruits, you will know the kind of tree that they are. So that is the second, second part of our question. What is the result of walking by the Spirit? Ultimately, it is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, let's take a look at the last question here. How do you walk by the Spirit? And it's going to be a little bit longer, so we have to barrel through it here. What does, how do you walk by the Spirit? And I have it here that it is by trusting in the power of God and following the Spirit's leading. Trusting in the power of God and following the Spirit's leading. First, I have to explain to you what does it mean to walk by the Spirit. I have been using that terminology. Scripture has been using that terminology, but I haven't yet explained what it means. And walking by the Spirit here, I think, is actually two parts. It means that we are to walk by means of the Spirit's power, by the Spirit's power, and it's also to walk according to the Spirit's leading. Walking by means of the power of the Spirit and walking according to the direction of the Spirit's leading. We conduct our lives in such a way that the Spirit both empowers us and also directs our life. And walking by the Spirit is not possible for everyone, but only those who belong to Christ, only those who have the Holy Spirit, those who have trusted Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Now, this walking by the Spirit here is cooperative. It is cooperative here in that ultimately the Spirit empowers believers to live a life pleasing to God, but at the same time, believers must choose to live by the Spirit. So that the spiritual life here, the Christian life, is seen as a cooperation between us and God. Of course, it is an unequal cooperation. God never fails, but we constantly fail miserably. But nonetheless, there is a cooperative work here. So walking by the Spirit is a cooperative work here with God and also with us. Walking by, Spirit, with God, walking by the Spirit has both a passive and an active component. It is a cooperative part. The passive component is where we walk by means of the Spirit's power. It is passive in that I am trusting in Christ's accomplished work and I am trusting in God's power. But nonetheless, there's also an active component in that where we are to walk according to the Spirit's leading and we are to follow the Spirit's leading, walking by the Spirit is active because it means obediently following the Spirit's guidance and leading. We're going to take a look at these two parts here, both the passive and the active. Now, taking a look first at the passive part here, which is ultimately trusting 
in Christ's accomplished work and in God's power. Verse 24 here reads, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now this verse here, verse 24, is a statement of fact. It's something that has already happened. The implication of this statement is ultimately that we need to trust in Christ's accomplished work and in his power here. The language here, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. It is not so much that believers have crucified the flesh, but rather that Christ has crucified the flesh. The language here, the crucifixion language here, ultimately points that to Christ's crucifixion. And that when Christ was crucified, he crucified the flesh with him. When Christ was crucified, the flesh with his passions and desires was also crucified, meaning that the flesh no longer has decisive authority over believers. The flesh has no longer this decisive power over us. So when we choose when we choose to be identified with Jesus, when we became Christians, we choose to be aligned with Jesus itself. At our conversion, we participate in the benefits of Christ's crucifixion so that we no longer live in the power of the Spirit. We no longer live in the realm, sorry, we no longer live in the realm of the flesh, no longer in the power of the flesh, but we now live in the realm of the power of the Spirit here. We are no longer slaves to flesh. Believers can walk in the Spirit because Christ has crucified the flesh, and believers share in that victory. We can walk in the Spirit because Christ has made it possible for us to walk in the Spirit. But this doesn't mean that we still don't feel the pull and the influence of the flesh. We still feel it, and we still feel this tension so even though Christ has crucified the flesh and the flesh no longer has this binding authority over us, we still nonetheless feel the pull and the tension of the flesh. So what do we do? What do we do? Ultimately, how then do we walk by the Spirit in the midst of such tension? It is ultimately by faith, by trusting in the victory that Christ has won on our behalf by prayerfully trusting that Christ has crucified the flesh with his passions and desires on our behalf, by trusting in the power of God that is mediated through the Spirit, by resting in God's power to carry us through each day. The passive component is where we trust in God's power to carry us through each day. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, when I was a kid, about seven years old, you know, I was playing in a, in a playground, and in those days, we only had the swing and the seesaw. And so all the kids were lining up to play on the seesaw. But then I got a little bit too close to the seesaw. And the plank came down and smashed my foot. And I grimaced and I'm in pain and I couldn't walk home. But my elder brother carried me home. And that is the same for us too, that in our Christian life, we can't really walk through the Christian life on our own strength and that we have to rest in God's power to carry us home. We can't make it through the Christian life on our own power. And we need to say no to the desires of the flesh, not through our own power, because we can't do it, 
but they're ultimately trusting in terms of what Christ has already done, that Christ has already crucified the flesh and that he has given us the power of his spirit to walk in it. So that ultimately that is the passive part where in terms of trusting in Christ's accomplished work and walking in the power of the spirit. Now take a look at the active part here, which is following the spirit's leading. Verse 25 says here, since we, are, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. It is keeping in step is a present thing. It's something we have to do every day. But how do we keep in step with the Spirit? After all, if you want to keep in step with the Spirit, we need to follow His leading and His guidance. But then, how does the Spirit lead and guide us? How does the Spirit direct us? Ultimately, this then becomes the question, you know, how do we know the will of God? Now, that's a huge topic, of course, and I can't cover it in the next couple of minutes. But let me just give you a little bit of pointers, a little bit of ways in terms of how we can know the will of God here. Firstly, the mechanism, the mechanism in terms of how we know the will of God it's ultimately through a transformed and a renewed mind. In Romans 12, 2, Paul says, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The primary mechanism then by which we discern the will of God or the leading of the Spirit is a renewed mind, a mind that is transformed and renewed. So when our mind is renewed, then you will be able to test, meaning you can discern the will of God, and you can approve it. That means agree that it is good and perfect. After the giving of the Spirit in the New Testament, we do not discern God's will by signs, by casting lots, by the Urim and the Thummim, by putting out fleeces, by opening up our Bibles and then Whatever passage our finger lands on, that is God's word to us. Now, God can still use dreams. And in mercy, God can still use some other supernatural means. But the typical way, the typical way that God speaks to us is through our minds that has been transformed and renewed. Through our minds that has been transformed and renewed. What then is the means by which we find the will of God? What then is the means by which our mind is renewed and transformed? Ultimately, it is Scripture. Because the way we transform and renew our mind is through Scripture. And we saturate our minds with Scripture and we constantly think God's thoughts. So Spirit does not lead us in a vacuum, but rather Spirit leads us by pointing back to Scripture and applying the Scripture to our current situation. At the same time, you know, we also gain a clarity in terms of the will of God through the wisdom of the church, through leaders whom we trust, through friends whom we trust, and also through prayer, praying for wisdom. After all, James tells us that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give it generously here. So that is the means in terms of how we basically find the will of God. But the more important question is, what is the goal? What is the goal of the Spirit's leading? And ultimately, what is the goal of the Spirit's leading is that we would be like 
Christ. We would be like Christ. What is the Spirit guiding us towards? Is that we would be like Christ. The Spirit's leading is not so much about a specific action plan. College, life partner, job opportunity, but rather about our character development, that we would be like Christ. And that's why Paul says, you know, if you walk by the Spirit, he does not say that, that you will know whom to marry. He never says that. Or if you walk by the Spirit, you will know what job to take. If you walk by the Spirit, you know what school to attend. He never says that. But what does he say? If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, I teach at, uh, at a school here, and I have students coming to ask me whether they sh- should pursue doctoral studies or whether they should pursue some pastoral position. And those are important questions because it concerns not only their future, but also the future of their family, and it impacts their future for several years down the road. But I tell them that God is much more concerned about our character, our holiness, than about whether we should pursue doctoral studies or whether we should take pastoral position in Church A or Church B. You see, when we focus focus on our character, when we pursue after Christ, when we pursue the mind of Christ, when we pursue the character of Christ, when we pursue holiness, the other part, knowing what school to go to, what job to take, all of that comes naturally. All of that flows much easily. So pursue holiness, and then you would ultimately make it be a little bit easier to know whether you should buy this house whether you should go to this college or whether you should take the, this particular job. So that is the active part in terms of knowing the Spirit's leading and then guiding it. So in terms of a summary here, both are necessary. Both the passive part and the active part are necessary. There is obviously dangers here. The danger here of being active when we should be passive so that instead of trusting in God's power, we try to do everything on our own strength. Take, for example, here, you know, Christ demands absolute allegiance from us. After all, he says that those of you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciple. God demands perfection from us. After all, does he not say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? But none of us will be able to give Jesus the allegiance that he demands or the perfection that God demands. But we have to remember that all of these demands of discipleship here are set within the story of the cross itself and that the demands of discipleship are met in the person of Jesus Christ. For he alone is the only person who displays absolute allegiance and submission to the Father and he alone is the only one who is perfect. And so we need the gospel, not just in becoming a Christian, but also in being a Christian. We need the gospel not just only in our justification, but also in our sanctification. We still need the gospel at all times of our lives. So that is the danger of being active when you should be passive. At the same time, there's a danger of 
being here passive when we should be active so that instead of obeying the clear word of God, instead of obeying the clear commands of God, we tend to be passive until we hear a direct word from the Lord. I don't know how, but until I hear a direct word from the Lord, either through some stirring of the spirit, stirring of the hearts or whatever, whether through a fleece, whether through dreams or some stirring here, but in our passivity, as we wait for a special prompting of the spirit, we can be disobedient to explicit commands of God, or we can be lazy to explicit commands of God. For example, someone may say, you know, I don't share the gospel with people around me because I don't feel the Spirit leading me or prompting me to do so. And I don't want to get move ahead of the Spirit, you know. I have to keep in step with the Spirit. But we don't need the Spirit's permission to share the good news with others. Because Jesus has not only given us the permission to do so, but rather the command to do so, to make disciples of all the nations here. Let me give you an illustration here of the necessity of both aspects, of both the passive and the active. Say that I want to cross the river. Someone who is too active would be, well, I'm going to break out the oars and I'm just going to row across the river on my own strength. Someone who is too passive would be, say, I'm just going to jump onto a raft and hope that the current will bring me through the other side. But someone who is walking by the Spirit ultimately is someone who is like on a sailboat. So that ultimately here, the Spirit is the wind that pushes the sailboat, but he still needs to raise up the sails, he still needs to tack, he still needs to hold the rudder. So that ultimately here, we still need to both depend upon God, the passive part, but at the same time, to also obey the God's commandments here. You know, you guys are familiar with the common phrase, let go and let God. That is, I think, cannot be a description of the, a total description of the Christian life, because that only describes one portion of it. That only describes the passive part. Yes, we have to let go and let God, but at the same time, God sometimes has already told us that we have to go and let's get going. So both the active and the passive are important. Let me just conclude here with exhortation. Walking by spirit is the way we live out the, more, the normal Christian life. It is not a walk in a park. At the same time, it is also not something that is impossible. It takes discipline, it takes dedicated effort on our part, but we also need to remember that God is the one that is at work in us. God is the one that is at work in us through the Holy Spirit, both to will and to order it so that we fulfill his good purpose. And so let us then walk according to the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, for it is the normal way we live out the Christian life. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we thank you for the spirit that you've given to us. Help us, Lord, to keep in step with the spirit, to rest in the power of the spirit. But Lord, give us also the bonus to step out in faith when you have clearly called us to do so. We pray all this through your son's name. Amen.